Hey, what's going on, Young Professionals in Energy? My name is Mark Heineman, and I'm with Young Professionals in Energy, or YPE's Denver chapter. We had the fortunate opportunity for our very first podcast for YPE to interview uh, none other than Mark Ruth. Mark's a super awesome guy, and he's been a researcher at NREL for over 15 years. For those of you who don't know, NREL is the National Renewable Energy Laboratory here in the Denver metro area of Colorado's foothills. Mark is incredibly fun, wildly energetic, and super passionate about energy and the development of energy and all the different ways that we produce it uh, here in America now and how we'll develop it in the future, you know, in five years, 10 years, 15, all the coming decades. So um, take a listen. We discuss everything from hydrogen electrolysis to the next steps in nuclear. And I think you'll just be captivated by Mark and his passion for everything that he's read about, researched, learned, et cetera, et cetera. So um, if you enjoy the episode, please leave a review and give us feedback. If you have suggestions about how to make it better, we're very accessible. We have our contact info in the show, in the show notes. Feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk to anybody. So um, as Tim Ferriss would say, without further ado, here is Mark Ruth. All right. Welcome to the very first episode, interview episode of Young Professionals in Energy podcast, uh, where we work to inquire from, uh, inspire, and influence the leaders in energy from yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, my name's Mark Heineman, and I'm here with my co-host, Ellen Scott and Jake Adamson. Ellen, Jake, how are you guys doing? Hey, how's it going? We're doing great. Yeah, yeah great. super excited about, about this. We're in the NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab building right now, which for those who have not been here is a very cool building. So we are just really excited about this. <laughs> awesome. So let's uh, let's jump right into it. We have with us Mark Ruth. And Mark, I thought that uh, we'd, we'd just let uh, you give a little intro about your background and what you what you do at NREL. And Sounds great. So good morning. It's uh, quite an honor to be on the very first Young Professionals in Engineering podcast interview episode. Um, I am Mark Ruth. I am the group manager of our industrial systems and fuels analysis group within the analysis center here at NREL. Uh, for those who don't know, NREL has somewhere around 1,800 regular employees now. About 200 of us are in the analysis center, and we aren't focused as much on do, doing R&D as we are on analysis and understanding what the opportunities are, what the challenges are, guiding R&D, trying to really understand where the energy system and specific components of the energy system need to move into into the future to help figure out where we as a society are moving as our energy system changes and grows over the years. Awesome. That's uh, one of the coolest <laughs> yeah. I think I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, I suppose just leading off, uh, what would you say inspired you to start this career? So I, I went to the University of Colorado, got a degree in chemical engineering, a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering in Let's 1993. Go Buffs. go Buffs. I was there for the glory years, which was a fun time wow. to be there. Uh, but a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering in 1993. 
Back when most people doing chemical engineering were thinking about biotechnology or other types of things, at least here in Colorado, and I got very fortunate that NREL was down the street, was not as well known as it is now. In fact, people used to ask me, do you work for Enron? And I went, no, 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 no gas <laughs> trading in California, none of that. Um, and so they would ask, so it wasn't as well known, it was a much smaller institute back then. And we were looking, or the lab then was looking for people to do techno-economic assessment of biomass to fuels, and that's exactly what chemical engineers were trained in, thinking about coming right out of school. They had some good mentors here. They wanted to bring in some young folks, and so I got lucky and started in that area. Um, I had no idea that that's where my chemical engineering degree would feed into, but it was great, and I've been, I've been very fortunate to be in energy for 26 years and to be at a place where I've been able to move around energy and thinking about different energy problems in different ways over the years to try to understand where we're going and what we can do. That's awesome. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm really excited to dive in some mm -hmm. of your areas of expertise. Um, so first, let's start with combined heat and power. You said yep. you're mm -hmm. on your way to a conference here this afternoon in Charleston. So that's kind of been your main focus recently? Uh, I wouldn't say that's been my main focus. Okay. It's been one of the many areas that I've okay. been working in. Um, for a few years, I said that in the analysis area, we had a lot of experts in a lot of different areas. And when we didn't have an expert, they'd send it to me. And that's how I got, got started in combined heat and power, because I started to say, well, there's some real opportunities here, some really interesting areas here. Uh, the really valuable piece about combined heat and power is that when we produce energy today in any way, whether that's energy for producing electricity or whether that's energy for transportation or whether that's energy to heat our house, we've got a lot of waste. Um, and especially when you produce electricity, we're only getting 30 to 60% efficiency, depending upon the technology we're using. Transportation, we're only about 30% efficiency. But a lot of that waste that we have isn't going to say electricity or automotive forces. Instead, it's going to heat. And in combined heat and power, you can utilize that heat for other for other value streams. So you use combined heat and power when you produce electricity, and then you've got this heat off stream that you can use for heating buildings or use for industry for drying or for other types of purposes like that. And that's a really nice opportunity. Now that's a very mature technology. Right. The thing that we're thinking about now is not only can you produce electricity and heat, but if you produce electricity in the right time to the right places, you could support the grid. As we add more and more renewables to the grid, we're starting to see higher ramp rates. We're starting to see things such as what we call the duck curve in California, which is where you've got so much solar production in the middle of the day that you're starting to curtail energy. Um, and, you, and you have to try to manage around that. Well, the good combined heat and power system and new technologies in that space, maybe we can better better support or use, uh, be able to produce the energy necessary at a lower cost to be able to hit those ramp rates and ramp down during the belly of the duck curve and to be able to support the, the grid in better ways. So my group, being an analyst, my group sat down and we tried to think about, well, what might happen, how this might play out? And we did an analysis of the state of California and looked at, well, where might combined heat and power systems fit for commercial buildings, for industries, how might they work, and then how might that support the grid, and would it, re would it reduce the cost of generating electricity for that grid, or in other words, the cost that the ratepayers have to pay for electricity in California? What might it do there? Also, could it make the grid a little bit safer and easier to operate? Now, I don't think we're going to solve, solve PG&E's problems from last week, and, yeah. and their forced blockouts, yeah. but we could start to look at opportunities to be able to reduce what we call the real uh, the, the hours that are difficult to meet loads uh, because of ramp rates or because of short periods of time, if you've got systems that are up and running and are able to do that. 
So that's where our combined heat and power, uh, our combined heat and power work is really gone, is thinking about that. And what I'm doing actually going, it's more of a workshop than a conference, but the workshop that I'm going to, there's nine projects that are funded, some at some at major companies like GE and Siemens, some at, say, uh, at, at uh, academic institutions. Uh, I think Colorado State has one. There's a few other at different academic institutions. And they're actually working on trying to implement the technologies. And I'll talk about, well, what's the value? How might this pay back? Where do you need to get to in terms of cost, cost targets? What are your performance specs do you need to hit to be able to participate in all of these? And that's where we start to then kind of have the trade-offs where they say, well, I don't think we can hit this, but we can hit this other one. And we start to say, well, that won't help the grid in these ways, but it might help in these other ways. And we start to figure out what the cost opportunities so really, are. It's really so a it's brainstorming really cool. workshop. I, it's, to, it's brainstorming. It's together. using analysis and our analysis tools to be able to really quantify what the value is, which then helps researchers hit their, you know, focus on the right things. Right. You know. A lot of researchers are very interested in focusing on what's right in front of them or what they're interested in. This helps them focus on things that will then hit the markets. And so I think of us as be the ones that help direct towards the markets the whole way. Awesome. So, so I guess curtailing or following up on that, do you, can you think of a new technology or a new path that uh, is most relevant? I mean, thinking, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about renewables and smart grids and, mm -hmm. you know, what we're using with combined cycles, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you think of uh, one or two specific technologies that mm -hmm. we're so, transitioning towards? So when I think about the curtailment, the, the growth of curtailment, and that's yeah. really driven by the growth of wind and solar PV on the grid. When we which, say curtailment, I guess for just for our listeners to define it's yep. curtailing existing power generation. Right. So what it is, is you're actually producing electrons or you're able to produce essentially free electrons. Say a wind turbine, if the wind's blowing, a wind turbine can produce electrons for essentially no cost at all. It just right. needs to turn. It'll produce electrons. When you're curtailing, you're actually not allowing the production of those free electrons, or you're actually producing them and then just grounding them, or something like that. You're just getting rid of that elect that power yeah. that you produce. So it's excess energy that we could be utilizing that is going to waste more. That we don't. That we have, it's installed capacity that there's not a purpose for well, for and, market for and, and, and use capacity. So historically, yeah. the way that we've operated the grid is load varies over the course of days and evenings and seasons. So we've got greater loads in the winter when we use more lighting. Uh, we've got greater loads in the summer when, we've got, when we use more air conditioning. The, these mild days in the spring and fall, we have lower loads. We obviously have greater loads at certain hours of the day. In the evenings, we always have greater loads and always have because people are headed home, so you still have the lights on at the office. You get the lights on at home. You're running a stove or oven. And you're doing all those kinds right. of things. So it all varies all the time. Historically, what we've done is we used, we've had a kind of a base load power, which is nuclear or coal for the most part that has met at least the, the most of the load and then we use natural gas or peaking plants or intermediate plants to kind of follow that variation in load right now what happens is when you add wind and solar is you start getting deeper deeper troughs in those in those days and you start getting stranger steeper p or steeper up up slopes steeper increases that are required in the evenings as the sun goes down you're producing less and therefore you need to start these these what we call dispatchable generators like gas generators to be able to meet that and to be able to to be able to meet that load now you curtail oftentimes in the middle of the day or 
in here in Colorado, we curtail a lot at like 3 a.m. on January mm. 15th because the wind's blowing <laughs> like crazy yeah. and there is yeah. there is absolutely no load. I mean, none of us are, are up, have TVs running or this or that that are using load. So you end up curtailing at those hours. So the question is, well, what do you do with this curtailed energy? How do you think about it? I like to think about the demand side opportunities to really try to think about how do we, how do we manage that load. Now, those range everywhere from, say, plug-in vehicles, I think is a really cool option, but you've got to have the vehicles plugged in the moment that you need them. Right. So in a place like Colorado, maybe plugged in at 3, 3 a.m., but you've got to schedule so you aren't starting the power to be able to recharge those, that, those vehicle, those plug, the batteries in the plug-in vehicles right when you get home at 7 p.m., which is probably the worst time to do it, right. but rather have it <laughs> scheduled for 3 a.m. So you've got scheduling issues, scheduling opportunities there. Um, there's other demand-side opportunities. I mean, for example, if I knew that my power price were going to go down at 3 a.m. because we're going to be curtailing and I could get it for free, maybe I'd run my dishwasher at 3 a.m. instead of running it you know, when I go to bed at 10 or whatever it might be. Right. So there's other types of load-side responses there. And then you start getting into storage as other types of opportunities. Um, on a diurnal basis, or I like solar, which you get power generation during the day and not at night, so things like lithium ion batteries are probably a really good opportunity to be able to generate when you've got that excess generation in the middle of the day, and then, or to be able to, to charge them when you've got the excess generation in the middle of the day, and to be able to discharge in the middle of the night or in the evening when you need that extra battery power. Um, I really like the idea of hydrogen as a key opportunity, not so much for the diurnal cycle, but for more of the seasonal thing. So Colorado, where we produce a ton of wind energy in January, but we might not need that energy for months. Maybe you produce hydrogen out of it. That hydrogen then that hydrogen could then go back to electrons, but that's a really low value use for it. Or you could use it to be able to make ammonia, or you could use it to be able to refine fuels, or you could use it to be able to run fuel cell electric vehicles, or you could use it for all these other types of purposes. We're looking at steel manufacturing, using hydrogen instead of coke to be able to make it cleaner. And then you could use these electrons that otherwise would have been just curtailed or eliminated for all these other valuable purposes, which is one way I really like to think about how we might really change the whole system as Absolutely. a whole. Absolutely. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit more because I... I mean, just looking at your research and your work, I feel like you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, right? And the, the hydrogen economy was popular in years past. And, yep. you know, thinking about, okay, how can we have an energy storage mechanism, which is essentially kind of what we're doing with hydrogen. But mm -hmm. for some people, it, you know, the, the technical hurdles in my mind are where are we getting the hydrogen from? What process are we using? Number one, to, to generate it, right? And I think you've articulated that we have a if we have a free electron more or less or wasted electrons that we could be using to mm -hmm. uh, generate a storage power source right? yep. then we could quote manufacture hydrogen yep uh, so first question is how do we do that what process is known for that and then mm -hmm. second question is where do we store it mm -hmm. I mean you, if it's if we're storing it for six months then that's a lot of gas that we're going to store for a long time and yep what what's what does the actual infrastructure for that look like yep so no great questions um so I would say, to, to kind of take a step back, to how is hydrogen today different than hydrogen was in the 2003 to 2005 right. era? Right. I would say in the 2003 to 2005 era, the way that the Department of Energy really looked at hydrogen in that era was, let's, let's create fuel cell electric vehicles 
And remember, that was a very different era in terms of the price of natural gas, the price of oil. Yeah, gas you was know, higher. Gas was higher. We were talking about peak oil all the time. Right. We were thinking about, okay, what comes next when we hit peak oil? Battery prices were much higher, much harder to imagine battery electric vehicles. Yeah. And so the idea there was, let's make hydrogen from all kinds of different sources and use them for vehicles. So the funnel went from lots of sources to using for vehicles. I'd say today's funnel is almost reversed. And so when I think about hydrogen today, let's make it from energy sources that aren't being well utilized. And I'll talk more about that as we get into yeah. uh, talking about generation. And let's utilize hydrogen, not just for transportation, for vehicles, but let's utilize it for heavy duty vehicles. Let's utilize it, as I mentioned before, for steel, for refining, for ammonia, for all types of other purposes that we might be able to utilize. So in my mind, the funnel has essentially been flipped upside down for smaller number of generation, a lot more uses that we're thinking about. So the question is, what generation technologies are we really focused on? And the generation technologies we're focused on are primarily around electrolysis in that space. Although we do think about R&D with photoelectrochemical generation, which is direct conversion of photons from the sun into hydrogen. Um, we do think about C-methane reforming in certain places, which is the traditional way that hydrogen has been made, taking natural gas, reforming it, using, right. uh, using C-methane reforming. I guess in, this is a question out of ignorance, which I'm yep. embarrassed to admit. But when, <laughs> when you're using that process, I mean, what happens to the carbon? Are you actually going to combust the natural gas and form CO2 during that process? Mm -hmm. So that's one, of the, that's one of the challenges with C-methane reforming and why I say we right. don't focus on it as much. Right. Because if uh, we're trying to address because... CO2 emissions as a problem than using natural gas to generate a source of hydrogen, unless you're also capturing or have a method to capture the carbon or CO2. Right, so that's the real, so the advantage of that, if you're thinking about carbon capture and sequestration or CCS, right. is that unlike say most uh, electricity generation today, you end up with a very clean stream of carbon dioxide. So you end up with 95% right. plus carbon dioxide in it. Whereas if you're just burning natural gas in your in your yeah. in your heater at home or in your furnace at home, or even to produce the electricity, has a much smaller percentage. It's 20% carbon dioxide, or at the highest, and 80% nitrogen. So yeah. you've got to deal with that whole nitrogen problem. So the real advantage on the CCS side is that whether you use coal or natural gas, you can get this really concentrated stream of CO2, and then you can sequester it. However, as I mentioned, we're really focused, at least here, we're thinking about, about electrolysis, which is taking these electrons that would otherwise be curtailed or what I like to call low-cost dispatch-constrained electricity, that low-cost dispatch-constrained electricity, or we're taking working with, say, the nuclear industry that right. has energy that may not need to go from heat, which is what's coming out of the nuclear reactor, mm -hmm. all the way to electricity to then go to hydrogen. You might be able to, and then what we use is high temperature electrolysis, to be able to utilize both the heat and the electrons to get a higher efficiency separation, splitting of water into hydrogen and oxygen mm -hmm. and the hydrogen from there. Okay. So the, the low temperature electrolyzers, one of the really nice things about them, well, the two nice things about them is one technology called alkaline technology is a technology that's been used to make hydrogen for probably almost 100 years now, probably over 100 years now. It's the technology that was used to make hydrogen back during World War II and is a big part of, we're being Colorado, we talk about the 10th Mountain Division. One of the big things the 10th Mountain Division did was they went into Norway and took an electrolyzer plant from the Nazis during World War II <laughs> and they were making hydrogen and that, they were using a, a, what, a very similar technology to what we have today in alkaline. And that's a great technology, but it's a very big scale. It scales up. It's a massive scale that you need. Hence, it really works where you've got places like Norway with big dams, with big hydroelectric plants, lots of generation opportunities. 
Now, what we call proton exchange membrane, or PEM electrolyzers, are a more modern technology that we're working on, and I've got colleagues that are developing, and it's really working on a much smaller technology that's very similar to the fuel cells in fuel cell electric vehicles. So if you see a Toyota Mirai or a Honda Clarity fuel cell or another fuel cell vehicle that's out there, it's essentially using a very similar membrane technology, but it's taking hydrogen and oxygen to be able to make energy. Here we're putting energy in and splitting water and hydrogen and oxygen using similar technologies, similar types of catalysts. It's got a lot of R&D opportunities, but it's best its best opportunity is that it would be manufactured in a kind of a manufacturing scale. So you make a whole bunch of smaller units, say one or two megawatt units, and you can make them and you can manufacture them using manufacturing technologies like, say, the automotive industry uses for manufacturing today. And in that way, you can bring the cost down. And then they're extremely responsive technologies. You can think about a vehicle that's running on a fuel cell, and it needs to accelerate, decelerate, it needs to do all kinds of things. You're doing something very similar. And so you can respond to all the little changes in the grid, and you can provide services back to the grid, not just for the big ramp rates, but for all the little variations over the course of the day, over the course of time, as people turn it on and off machines, you know, all of that's changing. And you can provide all those services and help to manage the grid, as well as making hydrogen in a relatively cheap way. So that's the thing we really like about those. Now on the high temperature side, as I mentioned before with nuclear, we're interested in using heat and electricity to be able to increase the efficiency. And there we think about nuclear power plants or other places where we've got heat sources. And those have a likely have a lower, a smaller ramp rate, a smaller opportunity, but you increase the efficiency. So they're really nice for say a nuclear power plant that you might not want to run at full scale all the time, but might want to bring down so you aren't curtailing during the day. Then you make hydrogen then, and then you can produce the electricity that you need during the hours when you need the electricity. So those are the real technologies that we're thinking about in terms of production. Wow. Then your next question was on storage. And the question <laughs> is, where do you store these things? Yeah. So actually, geologic storage is a really good opportunity for hydrogen. Um, today, here in the US and around the world, we use a lot of geologic storage for natural gas. Mm -hmm. um, and people have seen that. Obviously, there's lots of storage. There's one that's just up here on South Table Mountain right behind us. There's lots of storage units around. Well, we've gotten a lot of gas out of the ground so far. So there's a lot of reservoirs yeah. that uh, yeah, to put that's it right, yeah. Yeah, have a lot of vacant pore space. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you've got pore space there, but we've even built, say, salt cavern reservoirs, right. especially in, in, say, Texas and other places where you've got big salt caverns. Hydrogen, especially we've got salt caverns, hydrogen's harder to store because it's, it's a, a much smaller, smaller molecule, molecule right? so it's going to leach out much more easily. Right. However, if you've got a salt cavern, you can definitely store hydrogen in a salt cavern relatively easily. So you need locations where the geology allows for salt caverns. They're right now, on there's a big hydrogen pipeline that runs the Gulf Coast because a lot of hydrogen is used to be able to supply the refineries and the ammonia plants down there on the Gulf Coast. And a lot of that is produced by, say, air, uh, by one of the air products companies or other they put it into the pipeline and then the refineries buy off the pipeline as they need it. It's kind of a nice way of managing that way you aren't linked for just one producer and one, one user. Um, and there they've got a nice big storage system that's right off of that. That is a geologic storage of hydrogen, a couple caverns right there to be able to do that. There's other places around the U.S. Uh, we're having discussions in western Utah for an opportunity there to the hydrogen geologic storage. There's other opportunities that we, that we can do that. But that's the real opportunity for very long-term storage. Now, is that going to work everywhere? Probably not. Are there other geologic opportunities? 
very likely, especially as we think about natural gas that's pulled out of the ground, there might be some of those some of those old natural gas reservoirs that are depleted now that we might be able to utilize. There's other opportunities that we might have as well. But I mean, so just hearing hearing the description so far, right? I, I'm always thinking about okay, how how does this get commercialized? Mm -hmm. What's the industry use case? What's the commercialability of the technology? Yep. And it sounds like I mean, you would need a cheap source of electricity. Yep. For both the generation of hydrogen and the reuse, right? I mean, yep. basically connected to a large uh, grid interconnect yep. that you can purchase energy at a significant discount, right? When it's curtailed when it's or unneeded, curtailed. Yep. and then at will inject hydrogen over a large scale to so store the energy yep. adjacent to a ge large geologic storage location, yep. and then turn around and be able to extract it and burn it to generate electricity during peak periods or provide as a fuel source for for fuel vehicles or refineries yeah. as a, for refining or all the chemical properties that hydrogen brings. Mm -hmm. So I don't see this as, uh, say, the nearest term. In most cases, it's not going to be a large-scale near-term opportunity. This is for as you start thinking about, well, the whole energy system needs to change. So let's say we're getting a, we've reduced our grid, say, 80% of the of the non-renewable or nuclear generation on the grid. Let's say now we're starting to think about transportation and starting to think about industry and how do we start to reduce our fossil utilization there. Um, then we start to say, well, maybe hydrogen starts to fit into this. So in my mind, it really needs to be a really big play. We need to think about it with lots of generation options, lots of demand options, and hydrogen is an infrastructure like the electric grid is today. I mean. Think about where we were with the electric grid 100 years ago, 120 years ago. Yeah. Um, everybody would say, well, why would this electricity thing ever work? You've got to run power lines. <laughs> you've got to connect a light bulb here. You've got to have your generation over here. You've got to make that work. Kerosene is so much cheaper. We can just buy kerosene, <laughs> bring it, and run our lamps like we have been our whole generation. Right. right? I mean, it's the same type of transition question that we're now starting to look at here. And that's the nice thing about being in a national lab like NREL is we get to ask these big questions about what does that transition right. look like as opposed to how do we improve our profits in the next, in the next quarter yeah. or the next year. And so do you have some players in industry who are interested in this too and asking you questions and, and uh, looking into some of these projects long term? Like are, is oh, it yeah. the utilities? Is it yep. smaller, smaller type players? Or? Yeah. So the hydrogen, the hydrogen players are, are really kind of an interesting set in that, say, unlike, say, PV, where you talk about industrial players, you could pretty much all – you know, maybe it's just those of us that aren't in the industry, but we categorize them all into the PV industry and we say, here's the inverter folks, here's the panel producers, right. here's those types of folks. Hydrogen, you've got players spanning all the way from producers to users and everything in between. So um, the Department of Energy has a huge number of creatives, probably 30 different creatives out with different national ads, with different parties, thinking about different parts of that pipeline, ranging everywhere from, say, the demand side, where some of those players are companies such as Toyota, uh, who, who's developing fuel cell vehicles and looking at larger trucks. Nikola, who's going to be a competitor of theirs in the large truck area on that side. Uh, working your way into, say, steel refining, where there's different steel refining companies that are realizing that they need to do something different in terms of their steel refining processes. Right now, when you make steel, and if you go to, say, Beijing, a lot of that pollution, I've seen estimates around 70% of that pollution that you can see in the air in Beijing, it's not caused by transportation, it's not caused by electricity production, it's caused by steel production wow. and steel that's around it. And this is particulates, things you can see in the mm -hmm. air. It's caused by steel production. 
we aren't going to onshore steel production and allow here in the U.S. and allow that level of pollution. We aren't going to allow Pittsburgh right. to go back to where Pittsburgh was 100 years ago, which was also very much a steel production pollution So that you problem. need a cheap, uh, inexpensive fuel source that generates a lot of heat very quickly and has very little particulate matter emissions. Particulate matter, right? and it has to, it has to, uh, it has to be a, an oxygen acceptor. So it's right. not just, you've got the whole chemical process side right. behind it as well. So you've got to take oxygen out of the iron ore to be able to make the pure iron that then goes into the steel production. So you've got that whole part, and that's where you start getting the chemical properties of hydrogen that are, that are really I cool. I mean, it sounds like a pretty good so, fit, right? So, so yeah, so that's another one that we're working on. And then you go to the supply side, uh, working with electrolyzer companies who are improving their technologies. So Nell, which now owns Proton Onsite, is developing technologies. Giener is also developing technologies. We've got work with them to improve their technologies, reduce their cost, improve their performance. And then I've got a couple of projects that are going on right now with, with, with my group and with partnered with the Idaho National Lab and Argonne National Lab and several others in some cases, working with the nuclear industry, thinking about, well, what's their next? steps. Mm -hmm. So we've just completed, we're about to complete one with Exelon Corporation. There's about 100, about 95 now, nuclear reactors that operate in the U.S. Exelon owns about 21 of those. Um, and Exelon is saying, hey, we are struggling to be able to compete in these electricity markets. Price of electricity has come down as the price of natural gas has, got, has been mm -hmm. so low for the last few years. Yeah. We're competing with wind that's coming in and bringing the price even further down for a couple thousand, maybe a thousand, two thousand hours a year. Right. And now we have to compete in that space. We need some other opportunities. We need some flexibility. And as I mentioned before, that might be possible. So we're working with Exelon to be able to identify whether or not that's possible. We're also working with Excel, so it's a, I mean, Excel to it, identify their territories. When you're looking at opportunities to identify, I mean, are you looking just at higher use case or higher load demand, more efficient mm -hmm. load demand for them? So essentially say Exelon being in, um, being in fully deregulated markets, they're essentially right. sending, selling power to the markets. This is a bit of an oversimplification, yeah. mm -hmm. but selling power to the markets at the price that the market has for that hour. They're selling electricity in. Which can be substantial. I mean, just to put it in perspective, right? I was aware of a, a few hours in August, I think, that in Texas, the cost per kilowatt hour was outrageous. It was like $90 per kilowatt hour for a couple of days. Yep. Yeah. So. And so you'll see prices around $90 a kilowatt hour. You think about that as wholesale price. We, we, as, we as users usually think about in cents, a, cents per kilowatt hour. Right. That's 10, nine 10 cents, to 11, nine 10, cents, 11 right? cents per kilowatt I'm hour. I'm trying to get it for three and, and you half. start adding more to it. If you're in an industry, you're, you're at a much lower price. Right. So that's one end of it. California last year had almost a thousand hours where the price was zero or negative mm -hmm. on the wholesale market <laughs> yeah. in big parts of California. <laughs> so that's about, yeah. about an eighth of the year that the price was zero, and yet you're seeing other prices that are you know, $90 a megawatt hour. Right. So it's all over the place. And Exelon's saying, well, we're seeing prices all over the place, some zero hours, some higher prices. We need to sell into the grid at the higher prices. We don't want to be selling into the grid when it's zero. Yeah. It's a nuclear power plant. You can't turn it down, not in the U.S. We run nuclear power plants straight across, run them so as much as possible. So they almost want a power purchase agreement with somebody else that can utilize it they, they essentially need a cost-averaged energy source. Yeah. So they, they need 1,000 to 2,000 hours a year at $0.03 cents a kilowatt hour. Right. And if they can find a customer that they can sell their electricity to doing that. Or they can make hydrogen during those hours. Right. And this is the project we're working on is does it make sense 
do you have the cap if you've got to expend the capital cost for the hydrogen unit how do you need to rework your agreements with the iso where you're selling power to who might be the off takers for the hydrogen agreement if you're making hydrogen and how might that play out what price might they be paying and so we're doing techno-economic assessments with them to figure out how that might play out and whether or not it makes sense for them to install a hydrogen unit now hydrogen is also used at a much smaller scale to be able to cool their their turbines and so they're looking at they buy hydrogen at not at what we think about market price you know an oil refinery buys hydrogen at a dollar fifty to two dollars per kilogram they're buying hydrogen because it needs to be delivered in doers at these nuclear power plants for cooling purposes at 10 to 20 dollars per kilogram yeah. it's a much higher yeah. market price now it's not a huge not a huge fraction of their generation but they can turn around and say, oh, we can save money in this space instead if we make our own hydrogen, do some storage on site, think about it that way. So that's one of the newer term markets. Excel's got a slightly different world in Minnesota. They've got two power, nuclear power plants. They're regulated. So they've got a slightly different market and a slightly different dealing with, the, with their public utility commission and how they deal with that. Again, it's trying to figure out, does this make sense? Would this work as they need to be more competitive in their market spaces? I guess I'm, that's, that sounds like a really fun and exciting project that I think a lot of uh, our audience would be interested in somehow getting involved with, right? If someone's looking to be involved or chase, chase a career aspiration, then um, you know, having a nuclear power plant that generates hydrogen uh, sounds exciting. But yep. it, that's not really an option, I think, in Colorado because of the Public Utility Commission or... We don't know, have a nuclear in, power plant in, a lot in of Colorado states, today. Right? And I guess, and question for you do, you, do you foresee that changing over the next 10 to 20 years? So... Nuclear power plants have gotten very, very expensive to build, yeah. in, in, especially in the U.S. I mean, the Koreans are still building for somewhere in the $3,000 to $4,000 per kilowatt basis. To put that in context, if you want to build, say, a peaking plant with a gas combustion turbine, you're spending somewhere in the $800 or $1,000 per kilowatt. So it's about three times higher. Now, peaking plant with a natural gas turbine, you've got to buy natural gas as well. Nuclear power plant, you've got lower costs yeah. Yeah, in terms cost. of operating you sink your costs up front you should have lower costs in operating right um so the question then is would we ever want to be able to do that in colorado well if natural gas stays at three dollars or four dollars a million btus i don't see it ever making sense mm -hmm. in yeah. colorado now if things change that price whether that's a change in the natural gas price because of changes in regulations around natural gas production or a change because of changes in terms of the emissions costs or things like that, how that might play out, it's much harder to say. However, we're finding here in the US, would you really wanna build new nuclear plants? I mean, Volktel, the Volktel three and four units are looking like they're gonna cost somewhere around $10,000 per kilowatt, maybe more than that. It's gonna be really hard to be competitive in that yeah. space. Um, is nuclear the way to go? That makes it much harder. Now, there's a good companies doing work uh, to be able to say we can bring down the cost of nuclear if we go back to, as I talked about PEM electrolyzers, if we go down back to this kind of common manufacturing practice instead of everything's a one-off, needs its own design. Right. So New Scale and TerraPower and others are trying to build these what they call small modular nuclear reactors, right. which are much smaller reactors that they can build in one location. They can then have them delivered and installed and operated. Uh, if they can get over the regulatory hurdle, in other words, if they can 
can get the national the, the nuclear regulatory council to be able to say hey we regulated one of these units we know they're all going to be essentially the same because you're using the exact same design we don't need to go through all the processes that are necessary for regulating maybe they can bring that cost down mm -hmm. and again be back in this kind of cost competitive region that they need to be in that that would start to make sense yeah. so in my mind that's kind of the drivers that we're trying to think about and develop on thinking about the nuclear side. Do you see that happening? I think that that Voktel, I, I'm sorry, I think that New Scale, I think that TerraPower, and I think that others really see some opportunities in that space. Mm -hmm. um, again, at three to four dollars per million BTUs in the U.S., it's going to be. It, I don't. I don't think. I don't think anybody thinks that it could happen at that price. <laughs> gotcha. uh, now, globally, natural gas. I mean, the U.S. natural gas prices are much lower than anywhere else in the globe. We have a lot of it. So, it yeah. turns out we got really good at getting yeah, it out of the ground. Yeah, it's basically a exactly. waste product of oil in the Delaware <laughs> yeah. Basin these yeah. days. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's why we're even seeing, you know, sometimes we see prices down below $2 mm -hmm. a million BTUs. It's just, it's just I, the cost of transporting. I've seen some statements that, that have, uh, we pay people to take our gas. Yeah. yeah. It's not, not the <laughs> liquids, true. but yeah. Yeah. It's very true, and and that's what's happening in the U.S. today. But it's a different different case around the world, right? And so the nuclear technologies have greater opportunities in other parts of the world that don't have the same resources. I mean, this is the reason why South Korea and Japan developed nuclear technologies in the '70s and '60s, '70s, and '80s is because they don't have oil, coal, gas resources, right. and yet they were growing as industrialized nations. And so they needed some technology, and nuclear was the solution to be able to get them there. It wouldn't surprise me if we see something similar in India, uh, potentially in China, mm -hmm. in Southeast Asia, in other parts of the world that are growing that need this type of technology to be able to then couple with, say, renewables that are probably going to be cheaper. But as we talked about, when the wind's blowing and the sun is shining, that's not all the time you need to either overcome the storage side or you need some other generation side to be able to work together and think about the system right. as a whole. I guess if you're building a manufacturing facility, then it, it's just a matter of being able to connect the dots uh, from who requires the product and then who's manufacturing it, right? So, I mean, yep. if, the, if it can be generated in a place where, where there's inexpensive labor, inexpensive source of materials, and then have a commercial agreement with someone to have purchases, then yep. essentially you could build that facility anywhere. Yeah, I, I well, almost anywhere. You almost, got big, you yeah. got big water demands. You got the whole water side that you right. need to be concerned about. Helpful to be close to a source of fresh water. Yes, although there are ways to solve that. I mean, the Middle yeah. East is looking at building nuclear plants for you know, and figuring out ways to be able to do dry cooling and other things to be able to avoid some of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you, you're much less limited. The thing is that you talk about well, how do we how do we move into an economic way to do this? How do the agreements work? The agreements become more and more complex as you need to pull in more and more players, and you think about longer-term agreements and those type of opportunities, which I think is a real, which I think is kind of the way the world is going. You know, agreements yeah. are getting more complex in so many different parts of the world because you have so many new different players that deal, need to be able to deal with the larger scales, large opportunities. Um, but it means that the big players, you know, the the big oil companies, the big energy producers around the world need to be big, will, will need to be parts of it. Um, and we'll think about big nuclear players on the other side. And the question is, how do we get those partners together and figure out how to make those agreements happen? So in all of your experience in, in research, have you ever believed something to be true, but then had your mind changed? You know, maybe an industry trend or maybe a, a, a potential new technology? So, so 
this is where it, this should be old folks and energy because us <laughs> old folks, none of us predicted the price of natural gas would get to $3 a million BTUs. I mean, most for of so us- consistently. For so yeah. consistently. Yeah. I think most of us thought oil was gonna be over $100 a barrel, yeah. you know, come 2008 and more or less stay there forever. Yeah. Right? I mean, these types of trends, none of us thought were gonna happen 15, to, well, 20 years ago for sure. Yeah. And suddenly the whole world has been flipped upside down. Likewise, I would never have predicted, and I don't think most people would have predicted the price of solar would have come down the way it has in the last five to 10 years, which was really driven by you know a decision by China to increase the manufacturing scale and bring the price of those panels down. Um, we're seeing price changes that are unbelievable in a lot of different ways that really changed kind of the way I think about the world and think about what the competition is. Um, I started my career working in biomass and biofuels. Why? Because we thought oil was going to be a big deal and we needed a backup plan and liquid fuels because of their, their uh, energy density, their ability to be moved and transported are yeah. really valuable in that space. Absolutely. We didn't predict, you know, everything that was going to happen with battery electric vehicles. We didn't predict everything that was going to happen with oil that we would that our price would have to be able to compete with, you know, sixty dollar per barrel oil as opposed to one hundred and fifty dollar per barrel oil. We struggled with all of that, and so all that kind of blew my mind and made me change how I think about the world. So it, let's talk about. I'm curious your opinion about battery electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. right? If you're okay with pivoting to there, sure. Um, we need a lot of material. Absolutely. To, I mean, I was reading Polis's plan has 940,000 vehicles converted to electric, some large number yep. uh, in the next 10 to 20 years, right? Yep. Uh, where's all the material going to come from? I mean, to just to build that many batteries, it's tremendous. Right. I, and, and I think that that's going to be, in my mind, that global supply chain suddenly becomes really important. Yeah. I mean, the lithium supply chain is a really interesting growing one today in terms of where their lithium opportunities, where their lithium options. Uh, South America is a big player. Australia is a big player. Lithium mining may be the conglomerate of the future. You know, it won't be OPEC. It might be the lithium producers yeah. are a big player on that side. So, I mean, if someone but, wants to get involved in that now, do you have any recommendations or knowledge about where, where to chase it or where to... Look, depending on their interests and in their fields. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of other battery technologies that have opportunities that are out there. Um, you know, Tesla and others have really made lithium the de facto standard, you know, with the Gigafactory and those types of things have driven lithium to be the de facto standard. That doesn't mean that there won't be better technologies in the future. So people who want to go into research might be able to find better technologies. Now, the trick is whenever you're competing against a uh, established. essentially an established commoditized industry, which right. is where we're looking at that lithium becoming, you need to be able to find niche areas where you've got a better technology that people are willing to pay more for. On the other side, it's, well, what can we do on the cathode side, the anode side, the other sides on lithium, uh, on lithium ion batteries? I mean, the Nobel Chemistry Prize was just awarded for improving the lithium ion battery by discovering a new cathode, uh, a new cathode side. What do we need to do? How do we think about this problem? How might we change battery technologies that are more incremental that can then be put into be put into them? I think that's a big part of it. The third side is, well, where are the resources? How might we extract resources more efficiently? If you need that much more lithium in the world, 
then you need to think about, well, where might you get lithium from? How might you extract it? I know my, my colleagues on the, uh, uh, on the fossil energy side that work a lot in coal talk about being able to pull not just not, not lithium as much as, say, some of the other heavy metals out of coal seams yeah. to be able to provide resources for cobalt and for the other, these other materials that we need, not just for the battery side, but you think about electric motors, you've got other types of these kind of rare earth materials that we don't use a lot of today, but we use in phones and computers and other things more and more often, that we're gonna to need to think about how do we source those? I mean, I look at Apple, Apple bought a mine so they could avoid, <laughs> you know, mine in Africa, so they could avoid having supply disruptions. Yeah. I mean, these are things that we're gonna to have to think about as we as a society move forward. Yeah, so as we start to, to wrap this up, what advice do you have for young professionals who might wanna get into a very, um, broad career in um, research like yours? The, the challenge, I think, as, as a young person coming in is that you have to figure out ways to be specialized enough to be valuable to your employer at that point in time, or specialized enough to be able to lead, if you're an entrepreneur, get something to the market at that point in time, and yet adaptable enough to understand that the market 10 years from now is probably not going to look like the market is today. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you know, all of you that are in natural gas today, maybe that'll be there in 10 years. Maybe the, everything will have changed in 10 years. And, and there's a lot of people adaptable. that are not uh, optimistic about that forecast <laughs> right? I, well, <laughs> in our industry. But you look yeah. at, say, in my world, everybody predicts the price of natural gas is going to stay 3 to $5 per million BTUs for yeah. as far as we can see out into the future. Yeah. And the trick is to figure out how to be there. So I, you know, I've done, I started out doing biomass. I worked in a pilot plant. I did a lot of analysis there. I did a lot of hydrogen analysis in the Bush era and following the Bush era. I moved into the grid energy systems integration side. I now do hydrogen, combined heat, power, nuclear. I do all kinds of things. I found that for me, I've really leaned on my adaptability to be able Absolutely. to learn, mm -hmm. understand, and move into new areas. And yet, I've always had to focus down and be able to say, okay, I need to provide value in this area as we move forward to be able to stay as a, as a valuable employee and I think a valuable that's a, person. That's a tremendous industry. remark, being able to pivot or establish new skill sets, learn new yes. skills, and just really being willing and capable to learn new things, right, and provide yep. value. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and if you believe that your solution is the solution, <laughs> Those are the people that are going to have problems because at some point, yeah. either you're really right and you become, you know, the Microsoft or the Apple of the future, or you end up like most people really struggling trying to keep up <laughs> yeah. if you can't pivot around and move into new and different things at times. Cool. Well, Mark, this has been absolutely fantastic. I think we've, we're running out of time, but I, I can tell we're absolutely going to have to have you again. <laughs> that would be great. I'd your energy and more. enthusiasm is likely <laughs> contagious. Uh, yeah. It's very contagious. So I guess, Ellen, Jake, do you guys have other uh, closing thoughts or questions? I guess my only closing thought is um, if people want to learn more about the topics that you discussed, is there somewhere they can go or can they reach out to you directly about some of these, any questions they have? So there's a lot of information on the NREL website, mm -hmm. a lot of NREL publications, so they can absolutely reach out there. Um, I try to keep up with my emails. They can try to email me at mark.ruth at nrel.gov, but yeah. I don't always, I'm not always able to keep up with that, but I'm, I'm always very interested in getting new, energetic, bright people into the area and into the field. I think energy is so important for our future as a society that it's important to bring new people in and to always be thinking about how do we improve, how do we do this better. 
Agreed. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. Mark, thank you so much. You're welcome. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Cool. Excellent. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Ruth, super awesome guy. We love talking to him. As we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you enjoyed this, please leave us a review. It's super helpful for us. And more than anything, just keep being fascinated with energy and how we produce it and develop it in America and the world and tune in for extra episodes. If you know somebody that's interested in talking to us about energy, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you.